This episode is brought to you by Modi Body. That's pretty much the recipe for life. Everything you do should be baby steps because you can't go further than you can step. You can't drive faster than the car will take you. You can't reach a goal without that journey. If there's a positive spin to anything you're doing, look for it. Find that silver lining because even in that the darkest of times, there is always light. And it's been quite funny. It's been this term keeps on coming up a lot lately. But you know, the, the light needs a darkness. I say this all the time. I've got it written down. It's on my LinkedIn, all that sort of stuff. It's a waterfall starts with a single drop of water. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. Do you ever meet someone and just know in your heart that they are pure goodness all the way to their bones? If you know anything about Tim Canolan's work, you could probably already guess that about him, but meeting him in person last year absolutely confirmed it, and I've continued to be in awe of him ever since. Tim's one of those people whose why seems to have stayed pretty much the same, but whose how has evolved through many different amazing iterations like all of the best ways to yay, from a fashion label all the way through to a decade-long and very successful career as a DJ. Reading about his earlier years, you might not expect that he'd end up founding a children's charity that's helped millions of Australians, but once you see the common thread of his deep desire to make people happy, it all makes sense, as it always does in the end. In 1998, Tim founded TLC for Kids after an incredibly moving encounter that brings me to tears that you'll hear about on the episode, seeing that many sick kids fall through the cracks left by other organisations. TLC now gives relief to sick children and their families with no restriction on particular illnesses or conditions and has created life-changing distraction boxes to get children through uncomfortable or difficult procedures in hospital, an incredible TLC ambulance that has allowed many children and their families to go on exciting adventures outside the hospital, and a rapid response service, all of which have been used over 8 million times. If you listen to Tim today and don't want to help him change the world and donate all your money to him, I'd be surprised. And I hope that some of you do in the end. He's a truly extraordinary human recognized by so many accolades, but also by the impact he's making on millions of Australians. I hope he inspires you as much as he inspires me. Tim, welcome to the show. Sarah, I'm very excited to be here. <gasps> I'm so excited. I'm actually in your boardroom, so I'm excited to be here. <laughs> it's amazing. No, thank you very much for coming. This is this is great. It's uh, yeah, really, truly, really, truly, really, truly, really uh, pleased that you're here. Oh, I, it's such a pleasure, and it's been in the works for such a long time. We haven't seen each other. We had to do two New Years's. That's how long it had been since two I came New to Year's. visit. <laughs> 
Well, I am so excited to share your incredible story. And as we mentioned, we just before we started recording, we were talking about the fact that there's so much to talk about about TLC, but there's also a lot to talk about from pre-TLC, which doesn't actually get as much airtime. And I researched the internet like a crazy woman, and there's not that much from before that. So I'm very excited to talk about mm. all that. But before we start, I kick off by asking everyone what the most down-to-earth thing is about them. So what is something really normal or relatable about you that you do that's just, you know, just everyday bloke, even though he's obviously not. He's been an Australian of the year, so many accolades. (laughs) What's something really normal? I, the main thing is just like helping people. Mm. Um, And if I'm ever in a position to help someone, I, I err towards, well, you should do it anyway. And there's been many, many times where we're walking and I see something and then even Anna would say, no, they're okay. Look, you know, they've got people around, they've, they've got the help. I said, yeah, but I might be able to help just a little bit more. <laughs> so it's um, it's a bit of a fault or whatever it is, but that's probably my most down-to-earth thing, just like like helping people. I wouldn't call it a fault. I think it's such a strength in you and something that shines through so beautifully. I can imagine it's hard to turn off, though, at times. <laughs> it is. It is. But I enjoy it. Look, it's, I don't find it draining at all. Yeah. So. Oh, that's so wonderful. And you've built an amazing, amazing life and initiative and legacy and are changing so many other people's lives through that. So let's jump to that. This section is called Your Way TA, which is pretty much tracing how you got here. We call it your path, yay. And reminding everyone, so going back to the very beginning, reminding everyone that people now, like yourself, who wake up with such purpose and who do help people every day and know what your reason for being here is, never started that way, always went through so many versions of yourself before you figured that out. And I'm sure it wasn't linear. I'm sure it wasn't smooth, but I, I like to show people that through tracing back through all the chapters. So let's start with young Tim. Mm. What were you like as a kid? What did you think you wanted to be? I know you liked art and woodwork back at Buckley Park Secondary. So tell us about that. Ah, I used to. Well, if you want to go back even further, so before even school, uh, mum shared many stories with me like when I was a lot younger and always been a little bit mischievous, mis- mischievous uh, and wanting to know how things worked. So, and I remember vividly that one of mum's favourite stories that um, next door neighbour came uh, to the front door and knocked and said, oh, Judith, just, I don't want to alarm you, but Tim's sitting on top of your garage. <laughs> and I was two years old at the time. So uh, mum, and again, I can't remember it, but uh, the story is that mum came out the back and instead of screaming or yelling, apparently she said, oh, Tim, can you, can you just come down, come down for a minute? And apparently I was sitting there with my legs swinging over the top of the garage, which was like a one and a half storey high garage oh with a gosh. peaked roof. <laughs> so apparently I get up and I walk out of sight and then all of a sudden I pop around from the back of the garage. And even to this day, they don't know how I got up there or how I got down because oh my gosh. there's a, a gap that's taller than little Tim, <laughs> uh, which was next to a fence. So, um, so we always got up to, you know. Yeah, sneaky little not, adventures. Not necessarily no good, but, you know, always wanted to know how things worked. I used to take the video cassette player apart just to see how it worked. I didn't know how to put it back together. Oh. <laughs> but I'd take things apart to find out how they work. So that's been, I suppose, uh, even going back to the, the artwork and the woodwork part that I used to love at school, it was finding out how things worked. So if anything, you, you know, you reverse engineer it because there's always got to be a way and I've, I've been fascinated with life in general. Yeah. So that's always taken a, a bit of a, I suppose, a bit of a focus. And even with the my entire career, it's always been, well, 
how things how things happen, what people do, well, how did they get there? Yeah. And what have they done? What skills do you need to be able to do that? So that's that's always been part of me, I think. I love that curiosity. and Curiosity. How it came from two years old. Like I think one of the things we start off with is so much intrinsic information about our minds and what we like and what makes us happy and what we're interested in, but equally what we're not interested in. But as you get older, the layers of obligation and responsibility start to really cloud that. But I think so many people who come on the show and or even talk to me about the podcast and say, like, how do you find your yay? Look, look at your childhood. Like childhood you is such a good example of what adulthood you is going to like <laughs> and enjoy. And I think we all end up coming back to those roots of things that were actually pretty obvious to our parents when we were younger. Mm. So that- it, does, it makes you happy too. So and I, I keep up thinking that one of my earliest memories was playing with Lego. Um, oh. And now when we get requests in for Lego, just it sparks that little <laughs> childhood can tin I thing. Play? Oh, yeah, can I Can I get that one? Can I, I've just got to test it just before it goes to the kid, just in case. Um, but again, that, that was building things and working out how things worked and take things apart. So it was there's lots of childhood things that I used to do that are still true, I suppose, today that make me who I am. Yeah, I hmm. love that. And there actually hasn't been a guest on the podcast who hasn't reflected back on childhood them. Even if they've strayed from those things for a little while, that hasn't come back to realising actually my strengths and interests were there from the beginning. Yep. <laughs> it just got obscured and I've come back to them now. But one thing that does get really hard is when you do eventually start to have to convert that into a career or some kind of pathway for life, what did you think about your career? What did you think you wanted to be? What was the first sort of job that you had as an idea for your future? Because I know that, you know, the idea for TLC happened when you were very young and you were motivational speaking, but what led you even into that? Uh, I wanted to be an architect. Oh, so that was from year, oh the woodworking, say, I yeah, see. Yeah, that, that sort of came into it. And I think it was year nine, year 10 at school. I thought, oh, this is, I'd really love to do it because I love drawing. Uh, my work experience was at a at city council to redesign a roundabout. Um, so I worked on that for two weeks. Now I, I, I drive past this roundabout the quite often. The same one? Same one. Oh, like, my oh, gosh. I, I played with those draft drawings. And, you know, I, I had <laughs> this is all me, everyone. That. All me. You can thank me. <laughs> and every time I go around a, a big bend, I go, oh, yeah, the, 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 the bend is not quite right because I can feel <laughs> if you have to move the car a little bit. <laughs> So that was fascinating and that was a big interest. But then uh, I loved, because uh, I had to do a lot of science as well to mm-hmm. become an architect. And uh, I loved the practical side of science, but not so much the theory. Uh, and that's where I thought, oh, it you know, might be a little bit too much work. Maybe I'll do, you know, maybe become a draftsman or something. And then kept on going through school and I, I didn't end up following that career. Uh, I'd left school just before the first exams of year 12 and I was still quite motivated I was doing some part-time work with my parents Uh, they had dress shops and in the fashion trade so I was I was doing things but I thought look school's probably not for me Mm -hmm. so I literally left the next day I bought a suit the next day I got a job um, working for a clothing company working their stock room doing sales because I always had a the gift of the gab. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that so, doesn't surprise me. <laughs> I, I jumped in. I, I remember school was always, oh, this kid can sell ice to Eskimos. And I'll, I'll just, I, I just like talking. Yeah. Um, this is why we get along. 
<laughs> well, it's, you know, it's people need to hear. Yeah, so, absolutely. <laughs> so that was that was part of the, I suppose, the, the career path that sort of didn't, or took a big change. Mm. But then it was into, with the sales for the clothing job, I really liked interacting with people. And, and that was probably my biggest passion was, well, how do you make people happy? So even with the, the sales and the training that I went through for um, in this clothing shop, the idea was, well, you know, find someone, you have to upsell them, you encourage them to buy a different shirt, whatever it was. I thought, well, yeah, I get that part for sure, but I'd rather have a chat with the person, the, the potential customer, find out what they want, what they need the thing for, mm. and what looks good on them and what makes them happy. So by doing a little bit different to what I was trained, you know, sales went up and, you know, I became really, I found it very easy to sell clothing to people that made them happy Mm -hmm. and it was making them happy. And that was, I think, the underlying thing. So what can I do to make you happy? Yeah. Then it became a tool. So that sort of led to doing a, a variety of different jobs. That make everyone happy. That make everyone happy. <laughs> Which and is still what you do. Yeah, and, and the whole thing, it's underlined by what what is it that I can do that's going to make, if it's someone or a lot of people, happy. Yes. So that is... And this is why I get so fascinated by this section in everyone's story because now with hindsight going through it, it's just a big jigsaw puzzle and I get goosebumps watching all the pieces come together because a you know, sales job in fashion is a far cry from running a gigantic not-for-profit organisation, but the underlying passion for making people happy is the same. Mm. So I always say, you know, the why will probably stay quite consistent through your life. It's the how that changes. But if you're flexible with the how, then you can end up in the most exciting places. Absolutely. So what other hows kind of unraveled from the fashion job? Ah, gosh. I started DJing. Oh, Um, I did know this actually. I think we spoke about this last time. Do tell. Yes. Well, it was uh, my brother used to be a professional bodybuilder. So we used to go Gee. to the, the gym a lot and I was he did all the training and he was mm-hmm. in competition. So I was sort of the lackey, you know, make sure everything was okay <laughs> in his outfits and the training and all that sort of stuff. So if it was happening now, you'd be the Instagram husband? Yes. <laughs> yes I would have been. Just translating for people. Yes. <laughs> What's Instagram again? <laughs> and uh, when we were going to the gym, there was um, one of the guys that you, we used to work out with ran a mobile DJ company. And I thought, I've always loved music. That's been one of my things as well that I've just, I remember I, I might've been 12, we had an old record player at home and I remember the ABBA album. So we used to sit around and listen to this album. Yeah. And um, one day by accident, of course, and 100%, it, this was only an accident. I didn't mean to do it at all. It was just an accident. <laughs> uh, the record was playing and I stopped it with my hand <gasps> and played it backwards and started scratching. I thought, oh, I can do this. I can do this. Scratch the record a little bit. That's why it's an accident. So just in case mum listens, oh, it yeah. was an accident. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I think um, you're still scared of her. It's fine. <laughs> but I love the sound and I thought, oh, you can control that. So I've been you know, dabbling with music and then when I met this guy that did the mobile DJ, I said, well, how can I get into that? So he trained me, gave these all these um, – Back then it was also cassettes. So it was cassette to cassette. Stop. So it was, uh, and he gave me a list of things. I remember vividly the first DJ job that I had. So I had four weeks training with this guy and he showed me the equipment, how to set everything up. So it was literally from, you know, booking the venue, making sure you come in, setting up all the speakers, all the music, and then 
doing the the DJing work, then packing everything down, putting it back into the, the trailer and then getting back to him. So it was this whole... In four weeks? In four weeks. Oh, my God. And then you were out on your own. I was out on my gigs. own. <gasps> and I said, look, I'm a bit nervous because, you know, <laughs> first gig is, ah, you'll be fine because, you know, you'd be happy with the microphone, so you'll be okay. Yeah. So he gave me this list of um, the order of the songs to play this in and it was very structured. <laughs> and it was this presentation night. And I said, okay, so at 6 o'clock this happens, 7 o'clock this happens, um, this is the type of music, this is a song that you play at this time. So I thought, this is, I can follow these instructions, this yeah, is easy. easy. Yeah. I thought, okay, so 7 o'clock is the main time when I start doing the presentation. Sure, got it, no problem. Quarter past six, one of the guys from the present, uh, it was a, a football club, he came up and said, oh, um, we're going to bring things forward, so if you can make the announcements, everyone has to eat first, but if you can just jump on, just let everyone know, you know, welcome them. Oh, no. Um, and then get the meals and then we'll jump into presentations. I thought, uh, okay. Spanner in the works. That's 45 minutes early. <laughs> what am I going to play? I don't know what to do. So it was quite noisy, about 250 people. <gasps> so I grabbed the microphone, sweating bullets. And I remember the whole week I was driving along saying, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, good evening, good evening. <laughs> Good evening. Good Look, evening. If, good evening. <laughs> um, and I'm sure if people saw me, they'd think, what, what is wrong with that guy? I said, no, yeah. I've got to get the right line. <laughs> so I grabbed the microphone and said, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Tim. I'll be your DJ tonight. We've got a presentation coming up. If you'd like to make your way back to your tables, we've got some meals coming out soon. Um, I'll be playing some songs as well, but we'll have the presentations in about 15 minutes. Got a round of applause. I thought, oh. Oh, wow, I've done well. Oh, <laughs> covered in goosebumps. I thought, oh, and it was that little rush of power thinking. I like applause. Everyone stopped. They listened <laughs> and then clapped. I thought, I like this. <laughs> I'm a performer. I'm, I'm a born performer. Born performer. And that was literally from putting the microphone down and knowing that that control was there, that, oh, I love this and how can I use it and make these people happy. So that sort of kicked off a, a, a career that was well, 13, almost 13 and a half years. No um, way. my DJing work. That was not so, that long. I had no idea it lasted 13 yeah, years. Yeah. So it was, uh, <gasps> I, I, I love, like I think back now and I used to do a lot of the mixing and you know, beat mixing and scratching and, you know, crazy sort of show-offy DJ work <laughs> as well, throwing records in the air of and things. Um, <laughs> but it made people happy. So It made people happy. You know, you've got to <laughs> give people what they want. Oh, my God. Do you ever get on the decks again? Like for uh, your Christmas party or something? Do you ever just like whip out the on, skills? It keeps on coming up that I should. So I did I did sing, oh. um, which is another little insight to... A little um, side talent. Side talent. So <laughs> I, I, I've done a, a remix of Staying Alive. Oh, my gosh. And I actually performed that at our 20th anniversary dinner. <gasps> so it was... Um, which I, I, I thoroughly loved because it's just playing. Yeah. You know, just having a good time. But oh, that my all, gosh. That was, so that was the DJing work. Uh, while I was DJing, so that was night work. Yeah. And then started doing some promotional work for a couple of companies. And then uh, my brother and I did a lot of work together. And we had a clothing company that we set up as well because we couldn't get clothes to fit him for his uh, bodybuilding. Oh, with his muscles, just too big. Just too big. Just too big, yeah. <laughs> Even though looking at his four, four foot nothing. Um, <laughs> but we used to make the, the clothes and then we sold the clothes. We were running a gymnasium for a while. Very entrepreneurial. Uh, we were doing promotional work, uh, again, for another company. And then we started our own promotion company. We had about 30 staff at one stage. Um, this is back when Melbourne was the nightclub capital of the world. Yes. So we were literally going from nightclub to nightclub, but not doing promotions to get people to come to the nightclubs. We were doing promotions within the nightclubs, making sure people had fun and oh you know, they were entertained and having a good time. 
So that was really interesting. Um, <laughs> did some work uh, for uh, – it was actually streets years ago with Homer Hudson ice cream. Oh, my gosh. And we got to drive around a, a Hudson hearse that had been converted. A hearse? Um, a hearse. It was, it was this white white hearse that the, the windows had all been – uh, stained glass and uh, etched out. This there were all these so ice, <laughs> these ice cabinets inside the hearse to keep the ice cream cold. And we were driving around Melbourne, giving out samples of Homer Hudson ice cream, which was just you were the original promo girl. It was well, that's that's You're exactly like a Red what Bull it was. Promo girl. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I, I love doing it. And again, it was all about well, how do we keep people happy? So it's, it's funny that you were saying that for every single job, and. Uh, I suppose a little journey has been about what are you doing and how's it going to make someone happy. So it's never been about money. I've never yeah. gone down a career path thinking, oh, how can I make lots of money, 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 money. It's like, well, mm. I want to be happy. If I'm happy, if I can make somebody else happy, yeah. that's how it works. So, yeah, that was sort of the, the, the clothing and the, the promotional work led to doing a lot more of the manufacturing work for our clothing company. And this is a bit of a pivotal part of uh, my life, which was a, a huge change. So I was um, late teens, early 20s, and uh, a couple of manufacturers that we were working with because it, it got too big for us to do the work ourselves. So we were doing screen printing. We, we went to oh the – Oh, my gosh. Um, it's funny where the office is. Look, we're literally five minutes away from where we used to buy the material for the no clothes that we used to make. So we're doing pattern making. We did a you know, dressmaking course, all that sort of stuff. So we were – Hands on the tools. Mm -hmm. And again, we thought, well, if we learn how to do it and we can pass that information on, but if you ever need to do it, you, you, you can do it. And we outsourced a whole lot of the clothing to a couple of manufacturers that completely shafted us. Oh. And being quite young in business, you know, you, you, you don't know what the pitfalls are, or what to look out for. Um, so it ended up sort of costing us everything um, and the, the the clothing company was going quite well so we ended up having cars and we bought land and you know, oh it was, my gosh it was, it was lucrative <laughs> yeah and because of these manufacturers we literally lost everything, everything. oh gosh and when it happened we thought okay so all right money it was it was nice to have but it's a tool yeah and we've got the skills to pick ourselves up and if we have to go back on the tools and start making the clothes and try and dig ourselves out of you know, pretty big debt, um, we can do that. So because we kept positive and dug our way out of this debt and and I suppose you, you lead by or your best revenge is success Absolutely. every single time. Yeah. So we thought, okay, so we're sort of getting back on our feet and a couple of our friends said, well, you should teach people how you stay so positive because in life you have financial, physical or uh, you know, like any sort of a loss mm. that could happen. But we went through the financial loss, but we kept positive about it. So that well, let's let's set up a like a motivational workshop, teach people how we stay positive. So we had you know vision boards, we had positive thinking, we did goal setting, meditation. Look back you then, you were so before your time. With the meditation, which I absolutely loved, when we were telling people that we were teaching people how to meditate, because we went through a couple of courses and. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose I gravitated towards it really easily because mm -hmm. it was just this way, again, to go to my own happy place, just thinking you can switch off no matter where you are. Yeah. But when we were telling people we were doing meditation, <laughs> it came up like, oh, hey, is it, is it a cult? What's, yeah. What is going on? <laughs> so, no, it's just it's nothing Such like a that. Such a hippie. Such a hippie, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then 
from the motivational workshops we were doing, that's what that's what led to working with um, street kids mm-hmm. to try and you know motivate them and give them some sort of hope. Doing some work with high school kids to help them deal with the stresses of final year exams, and then eventually we ended up doing a, a full workshop on a weekend for um, a bunch of kids on canteen. So, and I'd had nothing to do with anyone that was sick prior to that weekend. Uh, family had all been very well, so very uh, blessed life, if mm. you want to call it that. And on this camp, um, the kids loved it. So they, they just wanted to know more. They, how, how can they just get so much out of it? And the motivation for me was next level. I thought this is this is where I, I feel I should be because I'm talking to someone about something I love and they want to hear more and they're putting it into practice and it's changing their lives. So it was, it was absolutely pivotal, and that's where I met uh, Francis. So he was only I was only four years older than him. So oh. he was like 17, I was 21, 21 and a half. And, uh, he had lung cancer, right? He had, he had lung cancer, yeah. and it was very young, especially to have lung cancer because it wasn't from smoking or anything. It was just just a very unfortunate situation. Yeah. And did a little bit more intense work with Francis after the camp and uh, – Pretty much, you know, the long story short, I helped him reach his last three wishes in his life, which was a, a pair of runners, a surfboard and a breath without pain. Um, and because I'd been teaching meditation, which was a, a great, I suppose, skill that I had, so I, I talked him through a really um, deep meditation, but still um, quite basic, mm-hmm. but with his nurse and his mum, because I got there okay to do it. And he actually took three deep breaths without any pain at all, which was just... For me, it was just um, – it stopped my life for a second thinking, this is this is awesome. Like I, I helped him get this thing that you know, was almost the unattainable goal. And um, same. Every oh. time I, – I don't know how many times I've told this story, but it is it is like yesterday for me. Yeah. Uh, I've got his photo in my office like I do. I, I, I truly and honestly hand to heart think of him every single day because he changed my life and put me in a different direction. So after I helped him with his breath, uh, sadly he did pass away a few days later. And when I was sitting with his mum, she said that he was content, he was happy, that you know everyone had done so much for him, and he's very grateful. So he's you know, a very appreciative kid. But the thing that he wanted the most was his breath without pain. And she said, "You gave it to him." And the second the words left her mouth, I thought, "This is what I'm supposed to be doing in my life." From Francis, it sort of the focus was well. Oh, how do we how do we help one more kid? What what's that going to look like? So it was a lot of charitable work. We continued doing our and the workshops and the DJ and all that sort of stuff was going on. But with the focus of well, how can you help someone else? Mm-hmm. And um, that led to working with some kids down at Geelong, uh, which organised quite a few um, like day trips and just exciting things for these kids. And then yeah. one of the kids got transferred to the children's hospital. I met Anna, who was in PR at that time. Her job was vetting anybody that came into the hospital, especially all the charities. She was also <laughs> working the PR side for the, the campaigns. So she had to date you to work out if she could uh, vet you for the program. Well, or not? no, it was actually she requested police checks and references. <laughs> so, well, you got through all those hurdles fine. I so did. it made sense that you ended up together. It was it was fate, um, <laughs> but I did have to fax these things to her. So that just I don't want to date how long ago this was, but yes, it was um, a few faxes that I had to send through with my credentials to uh, get in the hospital. And that's where where TLC started, but um, doing all those different 
jobs oh led gosh. to uh, meeting Anne and then starting TLC. Oh, and this is what gets me. If you had tried to start TLC straight out of school or straight off the bat, it just wouldn't have, you know, each of those experiences was a stepping stone that you needed mm. to meet the people and have the realisations that you needed to get to TLC, which even the TLC that you started is still, it's not the TLC that you have now. Mm. And I think we just have this deep rush or deep sense of needing to know the answer and get to the end straight away, but you can't rush through all those steps. No. No. And I love reminding everyone, like, you you couldn't have started that without all those other jobs that you had first. No. And if, again, if I hadn't met Francis, um, like the DJing work, and I, I, I could have continued on with that career and if I wanted to and gone international and, you know, if, if I want to, because, again, I loved the entertaining part, mm. but that, it made me happy, but I, I needed to meet Francis. I needed to have that, that uh, alternate I call them sliding doors moments. The sliding doors moment. Um, absolutely. Because it's, you know, I, I know I would have been doing something, would have been nice. Yeah. But I don't know how nice or, or how much of a reach it would have had. Yeah. And um, You mean we could have been recording this on a yacht in Monaco after a gig that you played at a club somewhere? Sarah, we are on a yacht in Monaco. <laughs> no this, one can see this, This is this, the remember? TLC yacht. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. (laughs) (laughs) So we were actually talking about this, that back in 1998, you and Anna started TLC at your kitchen table, which is actually where you made a great return to during COVID to run TLC last year. How did it all begin? Starting a not-for-profit is an enormous undertaking, but I also love that you said, how do I help just one kid? Hmm. Because I think you know, a big part of the Seize the A book is this concept of dream big, which you need to, to dream outside your current reality, but plan small so that you're not so overwhelmed that you don't start the dream. Because, it, you know, if you think too big, I think you get scared that it's so impossible and so not feasible that you just don't start at all. So how did you begin? Like, how did you even figure out you'd never had a background in this area? You hadn't, you know, been around someone who was sick to have an intimate experience of what people needed and it seems like you've always been good at filling gaps in human needs but how did you translate that into something? I think it came back to uh, again starting small and that's you know I've loved movies one of my my greatest uh, pastime used to be you know I still do very much enjoy watching a movie because it's it's that your break from reality but you used to love watching movies and so many you know variety of films but there's been a couple that sort of stick in my mind that have actually been some life lessons for me, which is quite funny. Um, even Bill Murray's uh, What About Bob? <laughs> so in the movie, there's a great saying that he has with his psychiatrist talking to him, uh, which is Richard Dreyfus, And he says, if you have to have a, a goal and meet a goal, you know where you have to go, but don't try and get there in one step. So it's baby steps. And literally, like one foot in front of the other, fantastic, you've just reached a goal. You, you've, you've done it. So your next step, fantastic. And you, those little wins lead up to the big win. I know it's funny to you know, reference a very funny movie, but <laughs> for, for, for me, like, well, that's, that's pretty much the recipe for life. Everything you do should be baby steps because you can't go further than you can step. You can't drive faster than the car will take you. You can't reach a goal without that journey. Mm. So when the focus was to try and help you know, one more kid, it's like, well, okay, well, it's, it's one more kid. I don't want to help a thousand kids. It'd be fantastic, but I'd, that never entered my mind to think, 
How can I help a thousand kids, ten thousand kids, a million, whatever it is? Mm. So, well, one. So, how hard could that be? So, you have to work out how do you find the one, but also make sure that you're doing the thing that they need. So, it wasn't going to be a personal thing that I wanted to fulfil something for someone. So, well, what does somebody need, and how do you make that then make that happen? So, as it turned out, this this first child, uh, the request uh, was for a organise a phone call from Jimmy Barnes for this kid's <gasps> birthday. Oh. And Jimmy was calling my phone. This is, again, back in the days of faxes. Yeah. Um, and mobile phones, I think it was a Nokia. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. 3210, I believe it was called. So <laughs> Those bricks that actually had the best battery life of any phone ever. Weren't they? And how cool were they? So cool. I kind of oh. want one now. Remember <laughs> Snake? Oh, Such yes. a good game. It was hours of my childhood. Yep. And that was the game. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was all you could the play. The only game. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Jimmy was calling my phone. That's when I met Anna. Anna took us up, up to the um, to the ward to see Michael. The phone call came through. He spent about 15 minutes on the phone with him. And when he hung up, you know, Michael said, oh, my God, this is like the best day of my life. And for me, in my head, I like, okay, check. Fantastic. I just, just helped another kid. And that's what he wanted. He, it wasn't bells and whistles. It wasn't balloons or a fancy trip. He wanted a phone call from Jimmy Barnes. So I made it happen. Then after lots of discussions with Anna and doctors and nurses – for the charity part, because it was still charitable work, so it wasn't a registered charity or a business that it was doing with my brother as well, so he was down at Geelong still. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, how can it progress into a charity because there was a need that wasn't being met by other charities. So kids were falling through the gaps, and that that floored me to know that or not all the kids in the hospital were being looked after. Yeah. Medically, for sure, you know, yeah. it's second to none, but that emotional need or those little bit of extra bits of support that the family might need to help pay a bill or have a weekend away wasn't there for all kids. It was only kids with certain illnesses. Yeah. So I thought the, the goal from helping just one kid then took a dramatic leap to think, well, it looks like there's going to be a lot more than just one kid that needs the help because back then it was 80% of the kids didn't fit the criteria. So it was the majority of kids. And yeah. it was heartbreaking for me to think, well, I don't think that's fair. Yeah, I didn't have the resources, the money, or you know, even, I suppose, the, the skills to fix this problem. But what I did see is, well, maybe if we encourage the charities that are already there, because we don't need to duplicate services or create something else, but encourage those charities that are already doing that great work to do just a little bit more. Great intention. <laughs> so so we started that and couldn't raise money. Uh, it was very hard because people didn't understand that. The gap you were filling. The, the gap we were filling. And, yeah. and why was a child that was burnt um, receiving the same support that a child that had a popular illness or a well-known illness? Mm. Well, emotionally, they're going through exactly the same thing. Yeah. So I was... Um, pretty much funding the organisation for the first two years while I was still DJing. So I was, was going to say, was it the DJ money? Yeah, DJ money. Thank you, DJ. <laughs> wickety, wickety, wickety. Um, the DJing came in really handy because yeah. that was a, a source of income to pay for things for the families, pay for you know either the toys or laptops. What are we getting for these kids? But it was, uh, it was finite. And it got to a stage where... I was getting almost burnout because TLC was taking up seven days a week. Yeah. Um, again, from our kitchen table that then as we were getting busier, went to the front room, um, we took over <laughs> that. People were donating product, but still it was hard to get money. Yeah. And then we uh, eventually moved the office. It was funny, Sarah. I've got the utmost respect for people and people have their journeys and, and you have uh, an amount of information that you take in. So you do what you do with the knowledge you have at the time. 
And when we're meeting with people, like even at home, we had like secondhand furniture. Look, there was it wasn't nice. It was it was comfortable enough, but it wasn't like you know, gold chandeliers or you know, gold, you know, giant things. It was like well, we were running a charity and giving all of our own money into the charity to make sure these things worked. But when people come out for meetings, they go, "Oh, that's a nice couch, isn't it? You know, <gasps> did, did the charity buy that for you?" I thought, "Oh, no." And just so you know, it was fifty-five dollars from. <laughs> you know, one of these furniture places that we got secondhand, but people judging yeah. us on what we had in the house, and it was a real, it was a really uncomfortable position to be in. To think, well, we have to convince separate, people, like yeah. yeah, separate people. Well, it's that, that's not our life, and you know, the, the charity's not funding our lifestyle. We were funding the charity's lifestyle, yeah. So we had to find a, a really cheap office just for perception, which I still now I think well, it's really sad that. Can't people just accept that you're doing good work and not have the judgment? But it's it's human nature. Yeah. So it was a nice, I suppose, nice lesson to learn. Well, how do you come across and how do you garnish uh, or garner uh, support? <laughs> garnish. How do you garnish support? I was like, like mm, coriander. <laughs> a bit of salt, not too much pepper, just a touch. So it wasn't just the charitable work that we had to uh, perfect and do and make sure that was all done. We also had to make sure well the business side of the charity was run and run really well. Yeah. So anybody that's thinking of getting into the nonprofit sector, it's not as simple as well. I want to do good, so I'll go off and just do my own thing. It has to be run like a very successful business. So you got you know your auditors, you got your banking, you got a lot of trust that you have to go through, mm. um, and set up in a structure that has you know your board of directors or whatever it might be. The whole gamut of the legal side of the charity has to be sorted out and in place before you start do doing anything. the work. <laughs> yeah. So it's this real sort of thrust into this brand new business, which again, bringing the skills that I had from the promotion business and the clothing business and even the DJing work, well, that that all came to um, fruition to make sure well, I know how to do these things because I've been doing it, just not for a charity. Mm. So it's been an interesting journey when we had our office in Nidri. So Anna left the Children's Hospital in 2000. That's when the GST was introduced. Oh, yes. So prior to that, we had this letter from, it was Consumer Affairs, to say that we're a registered charity. So we got a 10% discount everywhere you go. Yeah. And no one can say, well, I'm not going to give it to you. So we'll... We, <laughs> we to, got a letter. Yeah, we got a letter. They faxed it. Yeah. So. <laughs> Do you know what? Hang on. I've just got to, <laughs> I've got to rub the, the, the letter so I can actually see it from the fax. But as soon as they introduced the GST, we had to find this extra money because even though we were getting the GST back, you had to pay for it up front. Yes. Which was a real – because we weren't raising a lot of money anyway. So um, we actually got to a stage where we sold our house to keep the charity going because we couldn't oh raise gosh. enough for the – um, for the services and requests we were coming in, um, sorry to circle back when we were trying to encourage charities to do more, charities started referring kids to us. Oh. <laughs> um, Which is a nice reflection, nice reflection. Of, your, of the work that you're doing and the value yeah. you're adding to the landscape, but logistically difficult. Very difficult. But all, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for recognising our that. work. <laughs> that's, that's great. Maybe we should start not delivering our services as quickly and then yeah. maybe we wouldn't get as many requests. Or we could have some kind of commission referral thing. So. Oh, <laughs> that would have come in very handy. <laughs> Before we continue today, I've got a quick word on today's partner in Yay, Modibody, and the wonderful work they're doing for sustainability, self-acceptance and seizing the Yay. Understandably, periods aren't our favourite thing to talk about or experience, 
But that has made it too easy for us to overlook that over a hundred billion menstrual disposables end up in landfill annually and can take 500 to 800 years to break down. Each of us will use on average 11,000 disposables in our lifetime, but Modibody provides a sustainable and surprisingly sleek solution with their period underwear range, allowing us to accept and love our bodies as they are, as well as loving the planet. And in February, they're shining a special light on body love and self-acceptance, helping us embrace the leaks, periods, tummy rolls and all. Hello, bloopers. <laughs> For me, a big part of that has been pushing through the stigma around certain topics of conversation that can often stop us accessing important information about our bodies. While the idea of period underwear definitely once made me cringe, wearing Modibody has helped me understand just how far technology has come to make the sustainable option sleek, discreet and comfortable. I understand my cycle better now and feel more in touch with my body as well as facing head on the impact of the products I was using on our beautiful planet. I highly recommend you check them out and give them a try with 15% off when you use the code SEAS15. Link in the show notes now. But I mean, this is the thing. I don't think people understand that not-for-profit organisations are actually, they need to be run like a business is. So the fact that you have been around since 1998 is this, I mean, the lifespan of any business at the moment is like five years. So to have lasted this long and flourished, having actually had to sell your house along the way and done many different, found creative ways to fund what you've done and, and still be here to tell the tale is an extraordinary achievement, let alone the fact that you've actually helped over 8 million people <laughs> along the way. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is something that uh, we reflect on regularly, um, but it doesn't feel like 23 years at all. Yeah. And when I'm talking to a lot of our supporters and these people have been in careers, I think the, the longest career that uh, anyone I've had a lot of contact with is around that 30, 35-year mark, which is a long time for a career, a lot of these careers have been jobs that people have gone to and they've stayed at and they've you know they've made it work but as you're saying if, you know that the business life is around that 5 years so we've gone through a lot of challenges mm. but we've always kept our eye on well what are we here for what do we have to do yeah and even through the scary times so we got down to $93 left in the bank which was very tough like emotionally physically it was a daily drain to think well how are we going to get through this? And yeah. I've, I've, I always pay my bills in advance. So, uh, again, I suppose from you know very basic uh, bookkeeping skills, but knowing how to manage your accounts and make sure everything's paid up. When we got down to like literally the $93, I'd paid everything in advance anyway. So we had about a month or six weeks, personal rent, the office rent, the post office box, all these things were, were paid up. So that, okay, so we'll- We can know, survive for we like can survive a, a little while. Just a little bit more minced meat and a little bit more rice, but um, <laughs> yeah. we'll sort of scrape and scrape. And then luckily enough, Neil Mitchell put his hand up, say, well, what can we do to help? Because we can't let the charity fold, and which was it was inevitable. We saw, mm. you know, this, this terrible thing on the horizon, and the thing that was breaking our hearts was, if it folds, no one else is doing this work. Yeah, and it was this was in two thousand two. So even now, look, it, it still brings up that raw emotion. We were more upset that we couldn't raise enough money or get enough support to help kids that no one was helping. So it was that beyond frustration and luckily when we were on air, the community spoke. They wanted to get behind us and it was 150 grand they raised in three and a half hours. Oh, my god! And it was – I use the term emotional roller coaster a lot. 
But that day, literally at the start of the day, we're thinking, well, it's over. over. Look, we might get a couple of thousand dollars, you know, we don't know. And then when it ended, thinking, wow, we can help the kids again. I can't even imagine. It was huge, just huge. And that, again, it's, you know, I've got Francis, it's, I suppose, like on my left-hand side, I was thinking of him, but that day when people stood up and and got behind us, and it hasn't changed. Look, since then, the the momentum's been amazing. Mm. People just come out because they see, well, we're in it for the long run. And it's not a five-year business. Mm. This is, you know, we we come into a quarter of a century soon. Oh, my gosh. Quarter cent. You know, that's that's (laughs) – That's gonna that'll be a podcast and a half. Well, you had to better get your DJ skills out for that party. Ooh, because have to, have to. <laughs> so tell us what are some of the things that you're the most proud of that you do do in your work? Because there are so many different ways that you support sick children and their families. And one of the biggest things that does always stand out is that it's regardless of the illness or the condition, it's not specific to one limited area, which those charities are so important, but I love that you guys have been a much broader service. But there are a couple of things you do that I think are absolutely amazing. The distraction boxes, which you showed me last time, which I got very distracted with myself. (laughs) The TLC Ambulance is an amazing initiative and so exciting that it's back on the road. We did Trucky Duck Day a couple of years ago. Like there's so many things going on that Again, I think the more you talk about them and the more people hear about them, people do actually want to rally around the things that you're doing and you provide such a wonderful way to connect people in need with people who are willing to help but don't otherwise know how because not everyone can start their own charity and I think if we did, you know, that would be reinventing the wheel way too many times and the admin costs that would go into it is just, yeah, a whole thing there. (laughs) But (laughs) what are some of the things you're doing and what are some of the ways anyone listening could get involved in those? Uh, I think, and as you pointed out, that the things that make me super proud is when we hear the results of our work from the healthcare professionals. Obviously, getting the feedback from the families, it's lovely, but it's never been a, well, we we need to hear someone give us praise mm. because we're here to do a job. And when we get the feedback from the hospitals about how successful the distraction boxes have been, how they've helped kids through procedures, take away that fear. Um, I've got, you know, I've always been not super Happy to have a needle. <laughs> it's not your favourite experience. <laughs> not my favourite experience. <laughs> Do you know Nick Faints? Oh, yeah. I I, I almost did. I've I've stopped now. I've I've you know, wow, I've, you've mastered it. I've mastered it. You've got um, your distraction box. I've used my own skills that we're teaching all these hospitals <laughs> and these kids. So, oh, oh, that's why you use a distraction yeah. box. So you get distracted from them doing something to you that you don't really want to yeah, happen. Yeah. But there's a lot of science in in there, like behind the boxes and the t- specific toys that you put in them, isn't there? Absolutely. Uh, and that, that, again, getting that feedback from the hospital staff of what's needed, um, how the toys and the items can be used. So it's very um, it's got a medical and therapeutic purpose. So they're not just a fluffy toy for the sake of it. But that's something I'm super proud of because it started in 2003. Uh, we went national in 2005 with the services, and now we're in New Zealand as well. So Amazing. it's like it's you know an official international charity to something you're super proud of to see that it's working and making a huge difference to literally that service has helped millions of kids which is just it blows me away to think those numbers and this all started from i want to help one more kid after francis so when i see those numbers just blows you away my god just it 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 get i get quite choked up about it thinking this is so much bigger than it's not what I'm doing. Mm. Incredible team, incredible board, incredible organisation mm. that I'm part of, and that's how I feel. So, well, this is you know we're a movement now, 
and it's something it's, it is, I know you touched on that earlier, but it's a legacy. So this is going to be so fantastic to see because this thing's going to be here for years mm. doing great work. So that's something I'm super proud of. Um, our rapid service is something that it doesn't get a lot of light um, in the community because it's still the sticky end and, and you know, it's, it's a pointy end of the stick because it's, it's helping out families who the DHHS, you know, abuse victims, uh, yeah, children who have gone through terrible, terrible situations that we can be there for them and help them out. So we don't really publicly talk about a lot of the, the requests that we get in. The, the, the nicer ones, for sure, we share those stories. Mm-hmm. I'm really proud that, you know, back in 1998, we started because the referrals were coming in for kids in need, and that's still what we're doing. So that hasn't changed in 23 years, and it's the same process. A request comes in, we help that kid on the same day or within 48 hours. So it's really fast. So that's if they call and a child has been removed from the home and need yeah, something, well, and with and that need accommodation? Because sadly, a lot of these kids do end up in hospital, Okay, and that's where the hospital staff will notify us to say well, this child's literally either been dumped at the hospital oh, by a family. And first time I heard that, I was, I was quite confronted. But, of course. Uh, within literally a split second, I was thinking, okay, so um, we have a great habit of always put yourself in someone else's shoes. Yeah. And I thought, okay, so that's terrible that the child was, was left there, but how lucky was it that that child was left there? That in the care of a hospital. Oh, yeah. To, yeah. you know, it wasn't side of the street or somewhere else. It was, you know, in care. So at least the family took the initiative to know, well, let's give that child a second chance. Yeah. And they're really hard cases for us to deal with. And we make sure, like, we get, you know, new clothes and a bunch of toys and a backpack and, mm. you know, items of that child. So where, wherever they end up, if it is foster care or wherever, they've got their own things, which yeah. gives them purpose and a bit of ownership over something. It's very empowering. Yeah. And then when we launched the ambulance, the TLC ambulance. Oh, it makes me so happy. Oh, it was, <laughs> for me, it was Christmas all over again. Yeah. <laughs> we, you know, we've been working with kids in palliative care, you know, again, since day one. But this is the first time we can actually take those kids out of, you know, the respite care, wherever they are and get them to their treasured destination all safely and, you know, with Ambulance Victoria paramedics driving the vehicle. But just thinking this is just – it's it's the – for me, it's the icing on the cake of what we have because it's that full service Yeah. from being diagnosed to help me out in the hospital to the end stage, we can be there for that family for their entire journey. So it's oh – I just gosh. love it. And this is where – I suppose for, for people to get involved, even at Jess, our, our marketing manager, is saying it's, it's one of their goals is to let's have a whole lot of educated advocates out there. So once you hear about TLC for Kids, you think, well, okay, so you might not be, might not be financial, you might not be able to make a donation, but you might know someone mm. or you might know a service that we might be able to tap into or even talking about it to raise the awareness of what we're doing. And it's what I'm beyond grateful for this podcast. Oh, um, it's oh, an honour, an honour. I'm just not going to stop talking about it now. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I'm thrilled to do it because this means that it's opening up to another audience and if one person, and the, again, this goes back to um, how many lessons I've learned and how many experiences I've had, but one of our uh, former chairs of our board, they did this campaign or they, they were working with this company that was did a campaign faxing. <laughs> Um, but they literally did this random fax out to a few thousand people yeah. and they got a million-dollar donation <gasps> because it just happened to land on the right person's well, fax machine yeah. at the right time. And as soon as she said it, I thought, I'm stuck with that. Look, you don't know who you're talking to, but it just has to be the right person one day. And I think Neil Mitchell's a great example of that because 
you know, I met him, had the chat about what we're doing, and then he was the right person at the right time. And I thought, well, what can I do? So anybody listening, they might say, you know what, I'm looking for a charity or thinking about doing something. Get in touch. Yeah. And everything starts with a conversation. Absolutely. Everything starts with a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and if anyone, uh, you know, knew of someone who might be able to benefit from the ambulance or something like that, how do they – how does that work? Do you put in a request or a submission for a child who does want to get out of the hospital and go on a little adventure? Well, at this stage we're working with a few – look, through Palliative Care Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so a few organisations that are working with the kids. So they're in contact with them and then when – if a child's in their care, now they know this is an extra service. So we, we don't take requests uh, from the public – for the services that we have, mm-hmm. it's always through the healthcare professionals, yeah. which helps. There's two parts behind it. So number one means that it's a very genuine need for the child and it's what they need immediately. Yeah. And the second part is because we don't have you know, an abundance of funding, so we're still, because we're not government funded, so we're still raising funds through very kind donations. Actually, in saying that, through the pandemic, and I know we're still through it now, but our regular givers, so our the core of our database, mm. who have been helping us out for you know nineteen or eighteen years, have been involved. The donations they were giving did not change. Oh, that's so even though these people are you know losing jobs, income was dropped. Our regular givers did not stop giving to us, and it's something we actually got teary about it so many times last year, thinking these people care. And they've gone out of their way to make sure we can be there for families because we didn't stop our services through the whole pandemic. So it was beautiful to see that all these people stepped up. And and that your service is valuable enough that everyone wants it to keep going and they they think it is valuable enough to make sure it keeps getting funded. Yeah, which which we're just so grateful for. And that's, again, that I suppose goes back to why we can't have requests come from just of course. the public. One day, our ultimate goal will be if we've got the funding that we need, it'll be an open book. Whoever yeah. needs it, they just get the, the support. But I, I think we're a little way off that. Well, I'll sell my yacht that we're on right now <laughs> <laughs> and that can go towards the surface. I like the way it turned into your yacht straight yeah, away. My yacht, of course. <laughs> the Seize the Yay yacht. The Seize the Yay yacht. <laughs> that we timeshare. <laughs> what are some of the coolest things that you've done with the ambulance? Like some of the coolest trips you've taken kids on? Uh, th- it's actually surprising the zoo, which is, <gasps> yeah, Oh, my gosh, been that's to, so lovely. Out to Werribee Zoo, Melbourne Zoo, Aww. Collingwood Children's Farm. And Zoos are beautiful. Chesterfield uh, Farm, which is kids and animals, you know, you never work with them. That's yeah. the, that's <laughs> so you go straight to the zoo. <laughs> straight to the zoo with a kid. Um, of but they love it. And the, the feedback from the family is just the beautiful, oh, I suppose, byproduct uh, that's happened from the ambulance trip is we want to make sure the family have a great time. Um, but the feedback we're getting from the family is saying this is you know the first time they actually get to spend time as a normal family, yeah. not worrying about the illness of their child because that's not the focus of the day. They actually get to experience the things that everyone else gets to experience. Yeah. And it's just beautiful to see how much they appreciate it. And even for the ambulance drivers, because they don't get the time to spend with their, you know, when they're on call and they're doing their job and they're, they're looking after the, the care of their patients. Yes, of course. It's so rushed and stressed, but they've got to keep their calm. And then when they get them to a hospital, they go through triage and they're off to the next case. They don't get to spend time with them at all. No. So the feedback we've already got is saying this has been life-changing for them, really good for their mental health because yeah. they're not in that stressful fight-or-flight situation. This is 
hey, I get to talk to you about, well, you know, what are your, what are your favourite things to do? Mm. What, do you, what do you think of that animal? Oh, <laughs> isn't this a really nice day? And just they're normal conversations. Oh, so, beautiful. Oh, um, my gosh. And we've got a – there's a, a couple of trips coming up. Uh, one a little uh, girl wants to have some ice cream from I hope not out of a favorite. hearse. No. <laughs> no. Those days are behind me. <laughs> Because that's not um, the best place to eat no, an ice cream, I don't believe anyway. No, and I don't think rocking up in a, <laughs> no, a, a, in a hearse. Mm, no. <laughs> no. Actually, that's that's a good point, though, about the ambulance and what makes this different. So the, the kids, most of the time, their last experience inside an ambulance wouldn't be a positive, positive or, or pleasant. Even if it was just purely patient transport, there's a reason why they're in that ambulance. So it's yeah. not like, oh, I'm really looking forward to this. So we've transformed the ambulance into something that, number one, it looks great, looks cute on the road. It's so cute. Bright blue. <laughs> but inside we actually got um, interchangeable themes. Oh. So whatever the kids are into, be it Monsters, Inc. or Bubbles or the zoo or underwater, these kids actually get immersed into that experience. So when they go inside, it doesn't look like an ambulance at all. <laughs> so their last memory of being in the TLC ambulance is one of fun. Oh. And that's what we want to leave and leave that with the family. So it was that's such yeah, a joy. Beautiful. So it's Well, I don't think anyone will blame me for doing this, even though I do it all the time of running the first section for the whole entire episode, because this story has been so interesting and uplifting and amazing. And you inspire me every single time I talk to you. Um, but I'm going to just quickly run through the other two sections. I promise I won't take up too much more of your time. <laughs> Literally, there are three sections and I've just used the whole episode on one of them. But the story is just so interesting and inspiring. A quick one is NATA, which we have kind of, you know, weaved into the story, but it's all the barriers to your joy along the way. And I imagine for you, a big one is compassion fatigue. Working with your partner, probably from our experience anyway, I know it makes it harder to impose boundaries, especially if you're working from home last year, because the same person you're in partnership with in life is also your partner in business. And that makes the boundaries that prevent and help compassion fatigue or any kind of fatigue be better. Um, but I also loved watching your TED talk on finding your cause to smile. And it also made me wonder, do you ever not smile? And how do you work through those days where it does get a bit much? You do work with very heavy stories, you must be exhausted a lot of the time. It can be frustrating coming up against haters or people who will criticise no matter what you're doing. How have you managed that in this job, which I can imagine is more all-consuming than the average job? A lot of this comes back, again, very grateful for the life I have. And I don't have regrets, which is something that I was I was taught years ago. But if you can live a life without regret, it's it's healthier for your soul. Mm. And if you do have something that you, you might potentially regret, make sure you fix it yeah. and go on and do something about it. So when I was taught not to carry that baggage, because um, the example was, like if you're driving on the freeway and then you get cut off by somebody and you yell at them and that ruined your whole day, they just cut someone off that they probably didn't even know they cut off and they've gone on with their day and they might be having the best day of their lives. They go, okay, so I'm going to choose to spend my day and be upset about it or it could be like the person who just cut me off because it might have been an accident. It happened. So it's in the past. Mm. Can't change the past. Yeah. I look at the future. Well, that's that's fantastic. You go towards it. I can't change that though. The only thing I can do is here and now in the present. The That's the only time we all have. So I've always looked at you've got to have an abundance of energy, um, look at a, a, a 
if there's a positive spin to anything you're doing, look for it. Find that silver lining because even in that the darkest of times, there is always light. And it's been quite funny. It's been this term keeps on coming up a lot lately. But you know, the, the light needs a darkness. Yeah. Uh, when things are heavy, always look at well, what have we been able to do with that fa- for that family? How do we make their lives a bit better and happier? Have we been able to contribute to that? So by focusing on that, that's got me through a lot of these very dark times. You know, yes, we could use a hell of a lot more money um, to do what we do. And, you know, even at the moment, like it's over a million times a year we're helping kids, but that could be so many more. So instead of allowing it to uh, upset me or bring me down, I use that, well, that's a bit of motivation. So how, do, how am I going to get there then? Yeah. Um, working with Anna, which is, I suppose, most circumstances living and working with your partner um, it can have its frustrations, but we've found because we've got this, we just clicked. Even when we met each other, it wasn't like, oh my god, you know, the, the, <laughs> the love at first sight and all you know the bells and whistles. Oh, you know, very cool person. I was so impressed. You know, great sense of humour, but she was helping kids. I was doing the same. So I think we just, you know, the sliding doors moment. Well, we just had to meet at the right time because the journey we've been on has been very heavy. Yeah. Sadly, it's probably a lot more heaviness than you know, the good things, but we only talk about the good things. But we've been able to get through that together and I don't think I'd have the same life um, that I've got if I didn't have her as my partner because we've been able to share the highs, which have been phenomenal, and those lows to work through, well, what do we have to do to boost each other's energy up and be there for each other? Yeah. So it's yeah, yeah, it's pretty it's probably a pretty unique position, but the, the, the thing that I do – always is, well, let's look for the positive out of it. And if there's 1% out of 99% that's going to be positive, well, look at that. Look thing. at that. I love that because I think we also get very passive to our thoughts and feelings and forget that not always, and it's not always good to push aside negative emotions. Sometimes you do need to sit with them, but you do have a bit more control and choice over them than you think. Yeah. And that can make all the difference, making a decision that I'm going to focus on that 1% rather than be engulfed completely by the 99. Absolutely. And that, that control, that saying, which I just absolutely love, you know, you worry about things you are in control of. And I think the pandemic has been a fantastic example of that too. So built it's out of our control. Yeah. You know, the, the, the powers that be, people are doing as much as they can to bring control. But if you're going to sit there and worry about the things that you physically cannot control or, or take part in, you're not going to get anywhere. Mm. And you'll, you'll, you know, it'll be this uh, washing machine of stress that you're not going to see the end of. So yeah. <laughs> I call it a rocking chair. There's a quote um, worrying is like a rocking chair, it gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. I like that. Right? <laughs> So I'm like, oh, you are just rocking back and forth in this pretty uncomfortable chair. Yeah. <laughs> and you start feeling, oh, yeah, bit well, at seasick. least got to sleep. <laughs> See, uh, seasick on your yacht. Yes, mm. on my yacht, exactly. <laughs> it was worth it if it's on my yacht. <laughs> the very last section is play TA, which is the section that kind of strips back the part of us that is productive, that is achievement focused, that's busy and doing stuff and that's successful. And, you know, I, I usually ask people around this section, you know, how is your relationship to success and to the metrics that you use to measure your life changed over time? But I think it's very clear what your relationship is to success and how you define fulfillment and joy. Um, 
what that is and how that comes through in your work. But I would love to know the part of you that is completely separate to TLC, if there is a part that you kind of quarantine, for want of a better word, for yourself, for just pleasure, for letting yourself forget what time it is and letting your inner child back out. What are the things that you love to do to play? Uh, I used to play the piano a lot uh, and I'm, I'm picking that up again. Nice. Uh, very lucky. Anna, Anna got me a um, new piano for Father's Day. <gasps> Must be three years ago now. <laughs> yeah, we're like, hold on, last year didn't count. So. That's right. That one's, that's <laughs> off, so it's, it's three or it might be two years. But, yeah, I, I take a lot of joy in that creation. Mm-hmm. Um, I have in the past I've, I've created and composed a lot of music. Um, so you I write do a lot music? Of, yeah, so wow. I used to do a lot of uh, look, atmospheric meditation music. I've also done a lot of rap music. Stop Dance it. music. <laughs> I, I find a lot of joy in that. And every yeah. now and then I'll pull up, um, I've got a couple of apps on my iPad that let me mix music and things like that. Oh, so my gosh. I, I dabble in that and that brings a lot of instantaneous joy for me. Um, and the thing that I like about, especially with the piano, because you have to be there. Oh, yeah. It's mutually exclusive with any other activity. Yeah. It needs all your hands, all your brain. Yep. And the old, you know, the, the little finger, oh, my God, this hurts so much. <laughs> I hope it sounds okay. But I'm in a lot of pain, like the rocking horse. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I do find that that's, um, that's my little sort of happy place. And I don't want this to come across as corny, but literally spending time with Anna, um, again, we just her company is also my happy place. So oh, it's, you know, it doesn't matter. It's not matter. corny at all. It's beautiful. Yeah. that's And again, that's why I feel very lucky because it just, it means that no matter where we are, yeah. well, I, I can be happy even when things are a bit tough. So well, if we're together, that's the, the switch off from the world. And, mm. you know, every now and then, because things do get a bit heavy, the, you know, you lock the front door there. Okay. So bye-bye world for a little bit and we'll just, you know, be in our own space. And oh. I find that that's happy for me. Oh, that's so sweet. Mm. She's a lucky girl. Is she listening? I'm like, are you saying this because she's listening? Or? Of course, <laughs> no, Sarah, that's, that's so it. lovely. Sorry, I just outed you. <laughs> Second last question. What are three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in interviews or conversation? And people sometimes struggle with this one a little bit, but I would say like what's something Anna knows about you that everyone else wouldn't? Like weird sleeping habits or like funny kind of party tricks. Like the things that make, that help people know you better as a person, not just through your work, but like the weird things that you do. Uh, I I like telling, not telling jokes, but being funny. Mm -hmm. So I always try and find the humour out of literally everything. (laughs) I like being funny too. I'm not funny though, so that's a problem. Oh. It's a it's a difficulty. Nick reminds me every day. He's like, you just I know you like it, but you're just not funny. So <laughs> thanks for supporting my dreams. Yeah, thanks, Nick. <laughs> I, know. I think I'm hysterical, but I know. think you're hysterical. Yeah. Anyway, and Nick, Sarah knows where you live. Just, I do. Just, just so you know. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'd say always trying to. Get it. Get a laugh out of people. Mm-hmm. Um, make and people happy. Even, yeah, make people happy. Even if it's at my own expense, I don't mind because the idea is, well, <laughs> you just, if you've had a good time, great. And it's almost like a George Costanza thing. Yeah. You make someone laugh, that's it. You leave the room. The net done. happiness has lifted, so we're okay. Yep, we're okay. <laughs> uh, so I, I'd say that because most people, even though we might have had a few laughs, but that's probably a, a big thing that I try and do mm. as often as I can. They're great. What's the third? What is the third? I uh, I released a CD. <gasps> no. In, in 1994. It was called Dreams Become Reality. 
I feel like you need to give this to me so I can put the audio together with the episode. Yes, I will give you a copy of that. So it's um, it was inspired. I was, I was reading Stephen King's book, The Stand, oh. and one of the characters, he said he was in his car driving along, he turned on the radio, and it was his song. And I read this book in 1991, and I thought, how cool would that be? If you're in a car driving and you turn on the radio and it's your song, not saying, you know, tickets on me, but that, that'd be pretty cool because that means you're on radio. Yeah. So I thought, well, I want that to happen. <laughs> so You do get shit done, don't you? <laughs> well, I had to. <laughs> so I remember, I remember the day that it happened, recorded the song and um, went to the studio and all that sort of stuff. And it was pretty exciting. I got the old – the first thing I released was a cassette. Oh. Uh, A side, B side, nice. I think it was just an A side, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then it did progress, and then it had a little mini. Uh, I think it was an EP. That sort of called. Oh, it had, had an EP. Six tracks or whatever it was wow. on this CD. So that was out there. I thought, oh, this is fantastic, and I got it into a few record shops, and it wasn't JB Hi-Fi, but it's like the equivalent of. Yeah. And then I moved up to Queensland for a while. And when I was living up there, took my CD with me as well and <laughs> took it to the local shops and a local radio station and you know, tried to do some self-publicity. Sort of didn't go anywhere. So that's okay. But yeah. the, the local record shops got it, so I'm happy with that. Yeah. And then I moved back to Melbourne and I got a phone call from one of my friends from Queensland. He said, oh, listen to this. And he's you know, playing my song. I thought, oh, that's really nice because he's, he's playing the song Just on the CD yeah. at home on his stereo because I gave him the CD anyway. He goes, no, keep listening, keep listening. He plays a second track. I thought, you're playing my CD. Thanks very much. He said, and then the radio announcer comes on. <gasps> oh, it was DJ Bebop with Dreams Become Reality. Number two on the charts. I thought, oh, my God. Spun out. So that was my, oh, I'll tick that off. I'm very happy with that. So not a lot of people know I did that back then. It was you know, the uh, DJ name and all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, so. Oh, you'll have to pass. There are no things that this man has not high achieved at, guys. <laughs> it's all just fun. All just fun. And very last question, what's your favourite quote? Uh, from Bryce Courtney, I say this all the time. I've got it written down. It's on my LinkedIn and all that sort of stuff. It's a waterfall starts with a single drop of water. I use that as the ultimate um, description when you're talking to someone, if you want change to happen, if you want anything to happen, if you want anything. Mm. Number one, as I was saying before, everything starts with a conversation and comes back to baby steps. But when you think about the idea of a waterfall with a single drop of water, you think that is billions of drops of water to make this beautiful thing happen. Mm -hmm. And I live by it. So just everyone you talk to, which sometimes comes across the wrong way because, oh, that's fantastic. It's another drip. (laughs) Um, But it's you know, it's a drip towards a beautiful waterfall. So that's I I, I love that's it. A live beautiful and, one. Live and love that quote. And it comes back to the baby steps thing that you were saying before. It all ties together. All ties together. Oh. Life is like a circle. It is like a little <laughs> circle. Oh my god. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Tim. This has been absolutely wonderful. You are such an inspiration. I can't wait to do more with TLC and hopefully get some of the neighbourhood on board as well. Oh, thank you so much. This is beyond an honour. I've got the <laughs> utmost respect for you. You are changing lives. Um, it's very entertaining, <laughs> and it's it's you become an incredible voice oh, for so many people, you. so many causes, so many inspirational people as well that, again, inspire other people. So, you, you know, you started your own waterfall with a whole little <laughs> My drops. Own your own waterfall. It's a, it's a, oh. a yay <laughs> I'm like, 
What's a what's a water word that has yay in it? Like a yake? Like a lake? Ooh. Rivers and yakes? Yay to fall, falls into the <laughs> yake. Oh, this is oh, – I think we're losing everyone. Hang on a yeah, I know. It's like, see, I told you. Try to be funny and Nick's just like, just stop. Just stop. You were doing well before. <laughs> so close. <laughs> so close. Uh, thank you so much. It's thank you beautiful. so much. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I was half smiling and half welling up that whole time. What a beautiful human being, right? I would love you to show Tim some love if you enjoyed listening along or learned anything about TLC's incredible work. Sharing and tagging at Tim Canolan or at TLC for Kids and myself so we can share the yay. If anyone would be interested in getting involved in a Yeighborhood event or initiative for TLC, please let me know. I've been buzzing with ideas. There's a fabulous campaign coming up that I'll share very soon that we can all get involved with together. In the meantime, I hope you're having an amazing week and are seizing your yay.